this remarkable story, a story that I'm actually sad to leave. Uh, but it's hard to get more than eight sermons out of a four-chapter book. Uh, but it is, it, is, it is sad to leave it. Um, this story of incredible love and faithfulness and mercy shown towards these two widows who find themselves without husbands, Naomi without her children, going to God's people in the city of Bethlehem, wondering if there they will find mercy, if anyone will show them God's mercy and his kindness. And the question we've been asking each week is what does it mean for us to extend God's mercy to our neighbors in our time, to offer them God's kindness and his shelter in the midst of a difficult world? You know, uh, we've mentioned throughout this service today that today we celebrate Pentecost. Pentecost is a, uh, a Christian holiday, a Christian holy day that we have taken from an original uh, Israelite Jewish uh, holiday. The Feast of Weeks uh, was their celebration that came uh, for them 50 days after uh, the Passover. And it was on that day, that Israelite holy day, that the Spirit was poured out on the disciples in Jerusalem and Pentecost became, uh, for us, transformed into the giving of the Spirit, the day we celebrate that. But interestingly, interestingly, uh, around the world at the time of Jesus uh, and even before, the tradition in the local synagogues at the Feast of Weeks was the assigned reading was the Book of Ruth, that they would read the Book of Ruth at the Feast of Weeks, all, all of it together, all four chapters, they'd read it aloud together. Why? It seems, seems an odd thing to do. What was the connection between Ruth and their Feast of Weeks and our Pentecost? Well, it had come to be that uh, the Feast of Weeks was a celebration for Israel of the giving of the Ten Commandments at Sinai, the giving of the law. So they were set free at Passover. Fifty days later, they celebrate the giving of the law, the making of the covenant between God and his people. And so we think, scholars think, both Jewish and Christian scholars, think that the reason Ruth came to be the story that they told one another the story that they read, that the rabbis preached on at this, whole, at this holy day was because the covenant that was given at Sinai, that bond between God and his people, those stipulations about how they were to love him and love one another, that giving of the law, that giving of the covenant gets worked out in the local level, in normal everyday human relationships like those we see in the book of Ruth. Right, the big you know, uh, mountain of glory, God speaking his voice directly to Moses, that huge story gets worked out in ordinary acts of love between God and his people, between God's people and one another. The way that the covenant gets tested, will God's people be obedient and faithful to the covenant, is in how they treat widows, immigrants, foreigners, orphans the least of these among them. The test of the covenant, the test of the bonds that tie them to God and towards one another was in this local level. And so it is for us as the church. You know, it's, it's beautiful, isn't it, that the, the giving of the law celebrated at the Feast of Weeks is replaced by the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. Right, the new covenant made not with the law given to us as commands written on stone, but given us by the Spirit written on our hearts marking us out as God's new people, a people of hope and life and vitality. But still, the test of that, the test of our life in the Spirit, the test of our life with God, is in how do we offer that hope, that life, that newness, that mercy 
to those around us, towards one another, towards our neighbors. And so we look today at the end of Ruth to see how we can show God's mercy to our neighbors. And we see in this passage that we extend God's mercy to our neighbors by sustaining their hope, by sustaining their hope. I've got to be honest, when I first read this last bit of Ruth, I thought, oh, this is kind of a bummer to end the book uh, on a list of hard-to-pronounce names. It's kind of a bummer to take this beautiful story, this story of love and redemption and desperation and faithfulness, and then end it with, and then Abinadab begat Boaz, begat... You know, this is the stuff that we breeze over when we read the Bible oftentimes on our own. But I came to see in studying this passage that it's actually the perfect ending for the book of Ruth. That this book ends with a grand finale of hope. This grand, you know, at, the, at a fireworks show that we'll all look out at, at, at 4th of July, you know, there's beautiful fireworks, but then it ends with the grand finale. This explosion of too much noise and fireworks and brightness. And that is how the book of Ruth ends. It ends with an explosion of hope. Is this story of Ruth and, and, and Naomi uh, has implications that ripple out, not just from their own lives, but into their community, into their nation, to the very throne of Israel and beyond to the whole world, that it ends with this incredible, incredible celebration of hope. And we and our neighbors are in need of hope, aren't we? You know, I'm, I'm told that my generation, I'm right on the line between Gen X and uh, the millennials. So that's, that's me, for better or worse, you're stuck with it. And they say that my generation is the most cynical generation that's ever lived in America. Uh, that cynicism has come to mark American culture. Cynicism is the belief that you can see through everything. You can see through everything to kind of the manipulative dark heart at the back of it. And our generation has become incredibly cynical. We've seen the failures of so many marriages over the years that we've become cynical about the institution of marriage. We've become cynical about religion, having seen religion fail so many, the halls of organized religion even used to abuse and hurt others. We've grown cynical about religion. Politics, we've been cynical of for years, and it's kind of cresting now. We're deeply cynical. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's tied to our generation. I think if you look at uh, the comedy that we laugh at, if you look at the way that we talk towards one another, that we are a cynical and despairing culture. They say that my generation is the first, uh, that the first generation of Americans that doesn't have hope that our children will have a better life than we had and that their children will have a better life than they had. Uh, the belief in the American dream, that belief in our continual progress, has eroded uh, for so many of us. That's the case for our generation. Uh, cynicism and despair, especially the case in, in communities of need, in communities of urban poverty and rural poverty. Uh, despair and cynicism has taken deep, deep root. How can we offer, how can we find hope ourselves in the church and then offer hope towards those around us? You know, that's really always been the church's calling, is to protect hope within our lives, when the, when the other things that we hope in start to fall apart, the church is called to be an island of hope, a bastion of hope in this world. And we're called to extend that hope to our neighbors. This has happened a few times in church history where it's been really, really clear. At the fall of Rome, uh, when the most powerful empire in the world was crumbling at the hands of the barbarians, it was Augustine 
Christian St. Augustine, who wrote The City of God, and he said, you know what, the fortunes of this world aren't tied to the rising and fallings of political empires, the city of man, but that God is building the city of God right there within it. He's building something sure and lasting. He was the one who offered out hope in the midst of a world of crumbling foundations. It happened in our own civil rights movement, right? When, when, when Martin Luther King stood uh, behind a Memphis pulpit and said, I've seen the promised land. I've been to the mountain. I've seen the promised land. I might not get there with you. In the midst of a world locked in despair and with reason for despair and cynicism, he borrowed the language of the Christian story honed in Christian pulpits, and he pronounced it to the world that we will get to the promised land. When he stood at the Washington Mall and said, I have a dream, he was extending the language of the prophets to his world as a Christian pastor, sustaining their hope that a better world was possible. And so the church at its best sustains its own hope through the gospel. And then that hope starts to leak out to our neighbors, to our culture, to our society. And we become the sustainers of their hope. And so, from this passage, how can we find hope? How can we find uh, the strength to sustain our own hope in cynical and desperate times? And how can we extend that to our neighbors? Well, first, uh, we see in this story We see in this story uh, a promise that bitterness doesn't have to have the last word in our lives, that our stories don't have to end in bitterness. This story uh, in in Ruth chapter 4 forms a bookend with Ruth chapter 1 and 2, right? If you remember the story, it starts this way. Naomi and her husband Elimelech set out from Bethlehem in the midst of famine. Things are hard. They don't have enough to eat. And so they go out looking for food. They go out looking for sustenance. And while their bellies and their pocketbooks may have been empty, they had a certain fullness to them. Naomi set out with her husband and her two boys. What they lacked in food and money, they made up for in the bonds of their family, the hope that was represented by these two strong sons. They were going to find a way to get through this, this famine together with one another. And then things started out brightly enough. These two sons, these two eligible uh, ancient Near Eastern bachelors found two wives for themselves in Moab, in this land they had gone to. And so they got married. There was hope in the air. And then one day, Elimelech got sick. And instead of getting better, he continued to diminish. He got worse and worse until Naomi buried her husband. And then not long after that, her her two sons got sick. And in what must have seemed like the same scene replaying itself, they too declined to the point of death. And so Naomi finds herself stuck in Moab, left only with these two widows, her her two sons' wives. One of them leaves, Ruth stays. And so uh, they come back to Bethlehem. They come back and meet the same community, the same community of women that here in Ruth 4 are celebrating with them. When they meet them in Ruth chapter 2, the women say, hey, it's, it's Naomi. Aren't you Naomi, the one that left? And Naomi says, I've actually, I've changed my name to Mara. I've changed my name to Bitter. So this is essentially you running into an old friend saying, hey, aren't you Naomi? And her going, oh, actually, you know what? I've changed my name to Bitterness. Uh, I'm going to live alone over here, die alone. Don't bother with me. She says, God has sent me. I left here full and I've come back empty. Imagine the emptiness that you you must feel 
to change your name, to change your identity, to change that marker by which people call you. From whatever name your parents placed on you in love and hope for your life, and say, no, don't call me Dave anymore. Don't call me Steve. Don't call me Larry. Call me bitter. That is bitter. That is rough. What had happened to Ruth? We can all admit, what had happened to Naomi? We can all admit that life had dealt her blow after blow. She had dealt with hardship after hardship. But what was going on was deeper than just the hardships that she suffered. It was deeper than just the stings and arrows of this life. It had taken root in her heart and in her soul in such a way that she had given in to bitterness. It had started to shape her identity, the way she thought of herself. It had started to shape the way that she thought of God. And this is a very real risk for us. It's a very real risk for us. We all are going to suffer in this life, right? That's, that's part of living life under the sun in a fallen world, that each of us suffer losses, each of us suffer disappointments. And the question of whether or not those disappointments are going to shape the ways that we think of God and his character and whether they're going to shape the way we think of ourselves is a question that has very real and lasting consequences for the character of who we are and who we're becoming, for our eternity, how we think of God and relate to him by faith. A couple of times in the scriptures, uh, the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 puts it this way. Uh, he says, don't let the root of bitterness grow up in you, right? Don't let the root of bitterness. So in, otherwise, don't let, don't let, in other words, don't let those seeds that are planted by the hardships of this life, don't nourish them in your own heart. Don't water and fertilize them by dwelling on them. Don't let them grow up into something that might choke out the life of God in you. He's actually quoting uh, an earlier author, Moses, in Deuteronomy 29, uh, talks about the threat to Israel of abandoning the covenant and going to other gods. And he says, you'll do this when the root of bitter fruit grows up in you. So what Moses is saying, what the author of Hebrews picks up on, is that one of the strategies that our enemy uses to choke out the life of God within us, the life of faith and hope, is by getting the, the difficulties of this life to spring up in bitterness and anger and resentment. We start to look at the sufferings of this life, the disappointed and broken dreams, and we say, you know what? Now I know what God's like. God's like the one who doesn't give me what I want. God's like this one who's cursed me. God's this one who's caused me to suffer. I'm somehow afflicted by him. C.S. Lewis put it this way. One of my favorite uh, works of Lewis is uh, The Great Divorce. It's his, uh, it's his allegory of the life between heaven and hell. So it's an imaginary bus trip uh, from hell to heaven. And so uh, what's going on in the story is the people are left ultimately to decide whether or not they even want life with God, both now and for eternity, or if they would rather be left uh, with this hell that they've chosen for themselves of life apart from God, apart from his rule. He puts it this way. He's talking about a particular woman on the bus who's bitter and grumbling. Everywhere they go, everywhere they, everything they see, she's like, this, is, this isn't that nice, this isn't that great. My life's been hard. She's a grumbler. This is what Lewis writes. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. You are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. 
There will be no you left to criticize. Uh, then there will be no, left, uh, no you left to criticize the mood or even uh, to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. And so while we wouldn't go to this passage to, to build out our doctrine of the last judgment, there's something beautiful and true about what Lewis is saying here. That sin dehumanizes us. That the grumbling, the complaining against God and others, the bitterness can actually take over us in such a way that we've so made God into a monster that we wouldn't want anything to do with him. And so what do we do with bitterness? Well, in the gospel, uh, we are taught when the rest of the world is looking at the circumstances of our lives and our hardships, so they're looking at the nightly news to determine whether or not they should have hope. The Christian instinct is not to look at our own lives, not even to look at the goings-on of the world around us to answer the question, am I loved and is God good? Instead, we look to the cross. We look to Jesus giving himself to us in love. We say, you know what, if I look at, the, at my daily life, it's ups and it's downs. If I look at the, the world around me and my community and my nation and my world, there is reason for grumbling. There's reason for complaint. There's reason even for bitterness. And the scriptures never call us to, 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 to not mourn or to not admit that what's difficult is difficult. But the difference between godly sorrow, godly lament, and bitterness and grumbling is that godly lament brings those, brings those sorrows to God in hope that he loves us, that he cares for us, that he's good, that he's proven that once and for all for us on the cross where he sent his son that we might have life with him. So the Christian uh, has reason for hope, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of trial. We say we live in a world in which Jesus has died, in which he's triumphed over death, in which he's ascended to the right hand of his father, where he's poured out his spirit on us. And so while we might have sorrow, while we might lament, ultimately we have much reason for hope. We're a people of hope. And so we sustain our hope by realizing that bitterness doesn't have the last word in our lives. We can also know that we celebrate within a community of hope. I love the way that this story ends. If you notice, what happens is so God, uh, we've seen in the last weeks that God has provided a redeemer uh, for Naomi and for Ruth, this man Boaz who's paid off their debts, they bought the prop he's bought the property, he's married Ruth, and now here he lays Naomi's grandson on her lap. And all of these women, all of these women who previously had surrounded Naomi when she came into town saying, what's going on with you? Now come around her and celebrate with her this joyous event. And notice what they celebrate. They don't celebrate, hey, congratulations, you've got a baby. They don't celebrate, hey, congratulations, you were able to snag Boaz, you snagged a rich guy who can pay off your debts. What do they celebrate? The women said to Naomi, verse 14, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher for your old age. This beautiful picture of Naomi being surrounded by a chorus, singing songs of praise to God for his goodness and his redemptive work in her life. 
It's true in my own life that left to myself, I don't gravitate naturally towards praising God and thanking him for his goodness to me. Left to myself, I often uh, look at the hard things in my life and I do become bitter. Uh, left to myself, it is, I do forget the story of the gospel, the story of God's goodness and his sending his son and his redeeming me. I forget that larger story and I can start to get sucked into myself. I can start to get self-preoccupied, concerned with my own comfort, my own acquisitions, my own ups and downs. Each of us needs a community of faith to come around with us and to rehearse together the story of God's goodness and his grace in our lives. Remember, uh, God has shown incredible goodness to Naomi, hasn't he? I mean, he's answered her prayers. He's brought, he's brought her back to a place of fullness and place of her emptiness. He's done much for her. But every step of the way, he's done it through people, right? He showed Naomi faithfulness through the faithfulness of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. He's shown her faithfulness through Boaz. And now he brings all of it to this chorus of praise through these women. And each of us needs people around us who remind us of the hope that we have in Christ. Each of us needs a community of people around us that reminds us of God's faithfulness and his goodness. I think these women in this story, this chorus, are, can be thought of as a stand-in for the church. This is the people of God celebrating the work of God with Naomi. And if you're anything like me, you need this. This is why, you know, I know that it's hard uh, on a Sunday morning when the weather's beautiful and the sun is shining and we live just a short drive from the beach, we've got the river, there's so much beautiful stuff that we can be doing why we need one another, why it's worth it when the alarm goes off and you maybe have to battle kids to get them to church on Sunday morning and it's hard. Maybe you just have to battle the snooze button. But we need one another. And beyond that, we need to be addressed by God. We need to be reminded of his story. And so we show up week after week, uh, sometimes bleary-eyed, needing a cup. It was amazing to see the line of people lining up for coffee in 90-degree heat right, about to pour hot liquid, you know, uh, because we need, the, we need the, bowl, the, the, the pick-me-up. But you show up to be addressed by God, to be invited by the God of the universe into his presence, to sing over and over again songs that maybe you've been singing for years, to be reminded of his goodness and his love and his grace and his glory. We confess our sins weekly to be reminded weekly that we have a Savior who forgives us and loves us. There's a moment in the service where you're forced awkwardly to walk up to somebody, maybe who you know and maybe who you don't, and you stick out your hand awkwardly. Maybe you say, peace be with you. Maybe you just say, hi, I'm Dave. But you shake hands or you embrace, and you're reminded again that the peace of the Lord has knit you together. You come together and you pray because we're believing by faith that there's a God in the universe who loves us and hears our prayers. We come together under God's word to believe that he actually speaks. That's what you do when you listen to a sermon. You don't, you don't sign up to hear my jokes or my stories. You come because you believe that God speaks in the midst of a world that can sometimes feel so closed off from anything bigger than us. And then we come around his table and we hold out our empty hands and we say, God, feed us, fill us. And then maybe at the end, you hold open your hands again and receive his blessing. You receive his benediction. That's the chorus of God's people coming around you to remind you by song and by prayer and by creed that we believe 
that God is gracious and he's done good things for you. When you're bitter, when, you're, when you feel let down, when you feel cut off, when you feel without hope, you need a community of people to pick you up and to sing over you and to sing with you. Some of you later, this week maybe, will get up early to go to another breakfast or meet in a coffee shop or someone's home and to get together with other Christians and share your story this week. By faith, looking to other people to see something miraculous and redemptive and good in the normal, everyday stuff of your life. And so we, like, like Naomi and like Ruth, need to be celebrated. Uh, we, need to, we need to have a community around us to celebrate this hope that we have in the gospel. And we need to be reminded uh, that our neighbors need that. Right, that our neighbors uh, need, many of them don't have a community around them to sustain them in their journey. And that's why we practice hospitality as a community. That's why we reach out and invite new people in that they might join with us in our celebration of God's goodness and his grace. And so uh, we need to be surrounded by a community of hope. And then finally in this passage, we're reminded uh, that we find hope and our hope is sustained when we realize that our story in the end ends up not being about us at all. Our story, uh, like Ruth's and like Naomi's, ends up not really being about us in the end. That's why this genealogy is the perfect ending to the book of Ruth. That's why this list, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amenadab, Amenadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Period, end of book. Keep reading in your Bible. First Samuel picks up, which is the story of God bringing King David to rule his people. This is the punchline to the joke of Ruth. This is the surprise ending at the end of the movie. That all of this drama, it turns out it's not just a weird little provincial love story about Ruth finding a husband. Uh, it's not even the story of God's faithfulness to Naomi, this old woman giving, him a, giving her a grandchild. This is about, and has been about from the very beginning, the story of God building his kingdom on this earth through normal, broken, sinful, everyday people, people down on their luck and without hope, end up being the very people that God uses to build his kingdom. And so while Ruth and Naomi experience incredible love, incredible faithfulness, their story is not about them. Their story isn't about, oh, how sweet Naomi got a grandkid, right? Sometimes in this life, you have very tangible answers to your prayers, right? Sometimes you pray for a baby and you get one. Sometimes you don't, right? Sometimes you pray for a job and God gives you the job. Some days you don't, or he doesn't give you the job you think you wanted, right? Sometimes we feel the very tangible and very real answers to our prayers, but other times we don't. There are Christians who, uh, and I don't understand this, right? There's Christians who pray for deliverance from an addiction and they go and they go into a, they go maybe into a 12-step program and, and they get clean and sober and they never look back, right? I've known alcoholics who had a baby and said, you know what? I decided then and there I wasn't gonna drink anymore and, some, and somehow I haven't. That's some people's story, right? Other people's stories are year after year, decade after decade of struggling 
of fighting. You fall down and by grace, you're surrounded by others who help pick you up. And you try to live by faith for another day, another week. You try to add day to day and week to week and year to year. Right? Some of our stories are hard in this life. Some of our stories uh, seem to have these moments of incredible victory. And in all of our lives, it's a mix, right? There's, there's moments of, of triumph and tragedy. There's, there's chapters that close, and they seem to be closing with a happy ending. And then, and then there's this other part of our life that seems to be lagging behind and stuck in sorrow. And the good news is that in the end, all of our stories, the hard ones and the good ones, the moments of tragedy and the moments of triumph, end up finding their meaning and their purpose in Jesus. In Jesus. This very genealogy, the genealogy that ends in David here, gets picked up in Matthew chapter 1, and it continues on for a few more hundreds of years. A few more such and such fathered such and such, fathered such and such. And it ends up with the father of Joseph, the father of David, of Jesus. Right? That this story leads to Jesus. How beautiful is it that Jesus' family tree, that Jesus' family tree looks quite honestly like, like our family trees. Right? That Jesus' family was just as dysfunctional as our families. That Jesus had crazy uncles. Uh, Jesus had aunts that you, you know, when it comes time to tell the story of what everybody in your family did for a living, you say, oh, no, no, don't ask about Aunt Tamar. Don't, <laughs> uh, don't, don't ask about Aunt Ruth uh, and what she had to do to get Uncle Boaz to marry her, right? There, there's, whole, there's whole chapters that if you look at David's, that David's family tree and Jesus's family tree, you'd go, oh, man, there's some disreputable folks in that family. The theologian uh, in the early church, Gregory the Great, has this, had a saying in his writings. He said, what is unassumed is unhealed in the person of Jesus. What, is, what does that mean? Jesus took on every bit of human experience. Every temptation, every sorrow, every heartbreak, every uh, sinful uh, thing in his background and family. And if he didn't take it all onto himself, including the brokenness, including the broken families and the disappointed hopes, if all of that wasn't in Jesus' family, if it wasn't in his flesh and if it wasn't in his bones, then it would never have been healed. Then we would feel stuck hopelessly replaying the generational stories of our families, of our past, of our lives. But Jesus did take it all into himself. He took it all onto himself and then he took it all onto the cross with him. So that all of our brokenness, all of our hopelessness, all of our cynicism, all of our despair, everything in our life that we're convinced can't end in hope, everything in our lives that we can't, we're convinced can't end in healing, gets nailed to the cross in Jesus. The guilt canceled, the shame covered, the disease healed. And we will realize, with all of the company of God's people, from Ruth and Naomi on back, that our stories were never about our story. It was never about us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps so we could tell our grandkids about how successful we were and the life that we made for them. It's only and always been about Jesus, about what he's rescued us from, what he's doing in our lives now, what he's saving us from, even in the midst of our today mess. That it's all and only about Jesus.
You know, I've got to be honest, I am sad uh, to be leaving these women. I have enjoyed uh, spending our weeks in their story, following uh, faithful and courageous and brazen Ruth in desperate, sometimes compromising Naomi in the midst of their journey. I'm going to miss this chorus by the well of these women women coming and sitting around them and and singing with them and singing over them. I'm going to miss the time spent uh, with these women. But the good news uh, is that we get to spend time with one another, continuing this very same story. This story of how God extended his mercy to these two down and out women and the way that that mercy told a lasting story about who he is and what he wants for his world is the very same story that we live out day by day and week by week in our church, in our neighborhood, in our city, is that we are called to be just as much uh, as these women, pointers to the hope and to the mercy that we have in God, right? This is, this is our story. Remember we asked at the beginning of this sermon, how can we sustain the hopes of our neighbors in the midst of a world that's giving up on hope and a world that's giving in to despair? Right, I've got to be honest, I have never actually heard the Christian church uh, more likely, uh, more panicked, more despairing, and more cynical uh, than I have, let's say, over the last two years. I think we're pervaded at times uh, when we watch the news by a sense that we're losing, uh, that we're losing ground, that we're losing influence, that we're losing our, uh, the prestige that maybe we once had if we look just at the American scene. I feel like, in general, the hope of the church has often been under attack in a secular age. But let me ask this. If we, if the people who believe that God has created all things by his power and by his word, that he sustains all things by his common mercy to every human being, that he sent his son Jesus Uh, to make his life with us, to live for us, to die for us, to shed his very blood for us, that he rose from the dead victorious over death, meaning that death no longer has the last word in human life. He rose from the dead. He went and, and, and is seated at the right hand of his father where he rules all things and from where he will come again to build his kingdom and to make this world completely healed and completely righteous. And until then, he's poured out his spirit on us so that we in the midst of this life can live as citizens of a future kingdom marked by the presence of God? If we give up hope, who's who's left? (laughs) Who's left to have hope? Of all people, we should be those who, who, who despite everything else that's going on around us, no matter how bad the news looks, no matter how bad our communities seem to be afflicted, no matter how bad things seem in our own lives, Say, there is a reason for hope because Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We are called to be a people of hope and a people whose hope actually sustains the hope of the entire world. I'll end with a story. Um, In 2004, there was an election held uh, in Ukraine. There was a man who who was running uh, as an opposition candidate in that election, a man named Viktor Yushchenko. Uh, Ukraine was coming out of years of oppressive totalitarian rule. Uh, This was one of the first real attempts to uh, displace the ruling party. And all signs were that Yushchenko 
uh, had a real, real valid chance to win. There was, a, there was a life that was happening on the streets. There were protests. There was real hope. Polls started to show that he was leading by 10%, 20%. Uh, he mysteriously, uh, the, the, the government forces attempted to poison him. And so he almost died in the run-up to this election. He was actually currently, to this day, is disfigured as a result of the poisoning attempt uh, in the election. So as bad as our politics can seem at times, we haven't had that. And so there he was, even still, even uh, after a near-death attempt, disfigured by poison, polls showed as he persisted in running that he was about a 10% lead going into the polls. And then on election night, amidst uh, rumors of widespread uh, limitation at the polls and fraud, uh, the state-owned media went on the air to announce that he had lost, uh, that he had lost, that the president was staying in power and everybody could go home. And on this broadcast, on state-owned news, there was a, there's, a, there's the broadcast going on on the main screen, and then there in a little box in the corner, uh, there is the uh, sign language interpreter who's interpreting what's going on on the main screen for the audience. And when the, when the uh, news media says... Yoshenko has been defeated. The reigning president rules. She stops. And in sign language, she begins to say, they are lying to you. And I, and I am ashamed to translate those lies. Yoshenko is our president. And what happened is the deaf community of the Ukraine uh, became the only ones who knew who the real president was who had really won. And so they began furiously texting people. They began flooding social media. They began trying to get the word out that there had been fraud. The international community rallied to their support, and actually there was then a runoff down the road with more openness, and Yoshenko won and was elected president of Ukraine. It became known as the Orange Revolution. Orange was the color of him and his political party. And I think I've become convinced this is actually a beautiful picture of the role that the church plays in society, right? We never get control of the big screen, right? The, the, the culture, the world around us is going to be telling one story, a story that's dominated by greed and power and lust and pride and arrogance and violence, right? A world that says that the powerful always win, that the, the, the most prideful are always triumphant, that, the, that those who want power take it by force. And the church is in a little box down off to the corner with Ruth and Naomi. Their life was lived out of the way, unknown to most, in a little corner, saying, no, actually, Jesus is king. There's another king. This world doesn't end uh, under the lordship of those gods, but that Jesus is king. There is hope. There is another king coming who will one day overthrow the kingdoms of this world and they will become the kingdom of God and his Christ. And until he returns, the church, uh, in this out of the way, I mean, imagine the scene of that through, a, through a, a handicapped, despised community, the good news of a new reign broke out. May we be a part of that in our day and place. Let's pray.